All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of the forum today called The Case for a Breakaway Civilization. And we have with us Mr. Richard Dolan. And we were talking, Richard, about different possible leaks that could show us a breakaway civilization. But I wanted to ask you also that you were mentioning reasons for why they would keep this undercover. And I know it's a no-brainer, but for many people who never thought about this before, I think it's important to, to also get these basic questions covered. So I would ask you, is it sensible to speculate that one of the reasons it may be classified is not just egotistically, let's not rock the boat, let's keep our wealth, but could it also be that this can be a door to a new weapons technology that's so dangerous and so destructive and easily reproduced if it's out there that in the wrong hands it's a complete uh, hazard for the whole planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think there's a number of reasons, some obviously selfish and others just uh, uh, you know, reasonable and logical why some of this technology would be withheld. Uh, I mean, think about it. I, I remember a um, statement that the scientist Hal Puthoff had. Now, I mentioned Hal Puthoff in the last uh, segment relating to remote viewing, but he's also an expert in what's called zero-point energy. And um, Hal once made the uh, statement, he said, you know, there could be enough energy in a cup of coffee that could be extracted, that could be used to blow up the entire Pacific Ocean. Uh, you know, potentially, if you know, when you get to the zero-point energy field of, of our reality. Mm. So let's just say that one of the um, things that were discovered in this classified world is, is a weapon that would actually be that, in, that profound. Do you, do you let this information out to the rest of the world? It's a real question. That there's always going to be someone who's crazy or who might do something as insane as blow up the Pacific Ocean or what have you. And so uh, it could be, and if you don't know how to control it, you might just say, you know what, this is way too important, way too important to share with the world, and we've got to figure out a way to keep this secret forever. So this is a possibility. I don't know that this is the case, but I, I can assume with greater scientific understanding comes greater potential for weaponizing that that science. Um, I do know that um, some, or I should say I I've had long conversations with uh, responsible researchers who've made it clear that weaponizing this technology is very, very important. So, um, you know, in terms of um, a variety of things, you have electromagnetic weaponry, uh, extra low frequency weapons, you have high powered microwaves, um, you know, to say nothing of propulsion breakthroughs and material science breakthroughs that I think come come through with this. Um, and then, and then uh, technologies that actually literally are mind control technologies. Th- this sounds um, really fantastic to someone who hasn't studied it, but in fact, if you look at contemporary U.S. military technologies, they work with all of those things, including mind control. Hmm. Uh, there are technologies to um, to put voices in your head. Hmm. That's real. That exists. That's existed for quite some time, 
and only now it's really being discussed in some of the open literature. So in the in the black budget world, if you've got these technologies, um, you know it, it would be very easy to see why they wouldn't want that to leak out to um, enemies or undesirables. Yeah, but even if there is such a thing as back-engineered retrievals, etc., they have had over 50 years, and we know how much just a couple of years means in this evolution, and they're still holding back the goods. Uh, Many aspects of this technology is out there. Uh, Like you just said, there are precedents for this. But they're still not updating the... So there is a a particular wall when it comes to the essence of this technology. Um, I agree. I think um, probably, in my opinion, the primary reason for the secrecy on all of this, Mm -hmm. uh, one would be weaponry, but the other would be energy. Uh, This is my my own opinion on it. I mean, look, even a a child seeing the movement of, of a flying saucer, silent, instant acceleration, things like this, is probably going to realize that it is not using petroleum as its primary source of energy. just doesn't seem to be a logical thing. So whatever the answer to the UFO propulsion mystery happens to be, my feeling is the, it, it implies a post-petroleum civilization. And to say that is that's a huge thing. We have our entire global infrastructures based on petroleum, not just our energy, but our financial infrastructures. Mm. The U.S. domination of oil is based on the petrodollar. This is a very important thing. So um, if that were to go away, in other words, if, if we understand the secret of UFO propulsion, it's not going to take very long for – scientists even who are not in the classified world to think oh wow there really is a solution here let's figure out what it is they won't even need to pry the secret out of the black budget world they'll they'll figure it out guaranteed and um and that changes our world so radically Mm. to to transform the petroleum paradigm i do think is is a frightening prospect for these people who control it and um it it's it changes too much. That ties directly into your book uh, after disclosure. We'd like to have you mm, back. That's right. On, yeah, we'd like to have you back just on that. But um, you can go back in time and you can see. You mentioned Tesla. You can go all the way back to the 19th century actually to find uh, examples of a related technology. But as you know very well, there are dozens of contemporary projects not in the black world out there trying to to get this break. And what you're saying then is that if they get that breakthrough, if someone manages to show anti-gravity or free energy, which I don't know if it will be manufactured nonetheless because they still have the complete production control, but just it's out there. Do you think then that the incentives to keep this compartmentalized and off the books will be reduced severely? Maybe. The real question that we have, uh, one of the big breakthroughs in our world these days is 3D printing. Mm. And uh, this is this is, you know, we're not yet at the point in our 3D printing technology where this can happen right now, but maybe 10 years from now that uh, let's say some intelligent person in some part of the world, doesn't matter where Mm. they come up with what we would call a free energy device. There's a lot of very brilliant people in the world right now working on what they call energy harvesting devices, what we might call free energy. I can't say that they're all legitimate. I I don't know, but I have to think some of them are probably not bogus. Um, I was at a conference, in fact, with Joseph uh, Farrell 
about a year and a half ago. Um, I think he no, he wasn't there. I'm sorry, I've got I'm getting my people mixed up. But um, but I did speak with a lot of these energy people, and um, they're fascinating. They do absolutely amazing work. Yeah, I think I saw your talk from that. You were the UFO guy on that conference. I was the UFO <laughs> researcher there. Yeah. yeah, it was funny um, because when in that community, as with any of the other like alternative community, whether it's 9-11 or JFK, they, they don't really, they're afraid of dealing with UFO people like myself. But I find privately they're fascinated by the UFO phenomenon. It was gratifying for me when I was at that conference. Uh, most of those researchers uh, knew about my work and they were they were interested in it. I had good good conversations with them. Mm. But um, publicly they, they're very careful and I understand. But that was a fascinating uh, conference, and I met a number of brilliant people who I think are working on some. So just let's just say that um, one of them hits hits the home run, and they they succeed, and they decide I'm going to give this to the world, mm. and they upload a uh, a CAD design, a, a computer aid design of their device. It's the only thing that will protect them from being killed. I'm convinced right. of that. So I, I agree. So that you would then download it to your computer, and now you have it. And you could find a 3D printer with next generation 3D printing, which which you can do mixed materials, integrated circuits, probably even biological materials. And maybe you could print it yourself and go off the grid. And you can say screw you to your utility company and don't have, <laughs> you don't have to pay your bill. I think that this is a real possibility. And um, and this is in fact why I think that uh, the United States and other countries are pushing, uh, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement (TPP) and. Um, and now there's others. There's one called uh, TISA, T-I-S-A, and there's others, the yeah. Transatlantic Free Trade Agreement. All of these, I think, are designed to create a transnational corporate legal structure that would probably prevent this exact type of thing from happening. Uh, so that if some person in Mumbai, India, comes up with some genius uh, free energy device, mm. he might find that it, it uh, conflicts with classified patents in the U.S. black budget, and he can't do it. I can just see this happening. Um I, I really believe that some of the impetus for this uh, globalization, there's a lot of reasons for it, clearly, but I think one is to try to n nail down a corporate, global, basically a totalitarian infrastructure that prevents this type of file sharing from occurring. Basically, a future version of the Pirate Bay where uh, people can download this type of technology and print it in their, in their living rooms. Mm. I think that's so. It's like a foot race between the people and the and the the powers that be globally. It makes so much sense. I never connected uh, the TSA or whatever it's called to to right. this, but uh, now when you point it out, huh? It makes me wonder. Um, obviously, there's there's a lot we don't know. Uh, the things that we know have just been leaked. You know, WikiLeaks, of course, did a very big leak. Uh, we get little bits and pieces. There's a lot we don't know. But yeah, I think this is. Uh, a real possibility. Okay, so retracting back a little to the basic concept here of breakaway civilization. Let's say now that even if they have uh, bargained Nazi technology, if they have found something very ancient mm -hmm. or, or maybe even some uh, cousins of us who's dropped by some uh, toys, no reason why they have this. Uh, the fact is that they do have it. What's the earliest point you're confident that American, whoever uh, is the power that be there, have it? Um, that's a great question, Al. I, I pushed the date back probably to the early 1940s. When I wrote my first volume of history, 
Uh, I started it in 1941, but I would lo- I would love to revise that book one day. And um, because I didn't talk about the Cape Girard uh, UFO crash of 1941, hmm. everyone knows about Roswell of 1947. But um, there's been some very interesting research uh, about a, a case in the the state of Missouri, not far from St. Louis, hmm. at a place called Cape Cape Girard, and um, there seems there's a reasonably interesting case that a um, anomalous non-human technology was recovered in that year, 1941. There was no Area 51 at that time. The inf- the uh, technology seems to have been taken to Washington. And no CIA either. No, no. In fact, not even an OSS that was just being created. Yeah. Mm. But you did have Army intelligence mm. um, and you had Navy intelligence. So there there was an intelligence community. Mm. Um but anyway, I, I think in the United States case, I would – that's the first instance, I would say 1941, where it does seem to me possible that we acquired some highly exotic technology. And in fact, that makes more sense in connecting it to the development of the transistor mm. than Roswell. The transistor was patented in 1947, and uh, some researchers in the past tried to connect that to Roswell, but – that's really too quick uh, to get something in the summer of 1947 and then have Bell Labs patent a transistor right after that. doesn't make sense. But I believe Dr. Farrell has substantiated that to European scientific research of the 30s that there was actually a human precedence for this technology in Europe. There were precedents to the transistor. That's I think that's probably true, and you could probably make the case – on the other hand, the transistor, the work on the transistor, transistor, happened actually not very far in the United States from where the crash occurred. Huh, that's interesting. And um, uh, there's some very good work by Dr. Rob Wood, Bob Wood, um, who's now in his 80s, who connects the transistor to um, to the crash at Cape Girard, and he looks into the very controversial uh, so-called majestic documents. Mm which some people have disputed, but others, including Bob, who researched it, think are legitimate. Um, it, it would be, if the transistor has a relation to acquired technology, it would be... That's it. It would That would be it, but it also wouldn't be dismissing the prior work that was done in the human infrastructure on it. It would just simply indicate that maybe we got an assist along the way. But irregardless of the transistor, we do have uh, a potential crash here, which obviously they must have uh, played around with anyway. Yeah, it's, no, it's very interesting. Actually, the case for the Cape Girard crash is, uh, is not a bad one. Uh, you've got you know, some witness testimony, but these, these seem to be very detailed and, and honest people. But that's really all you've got, a couple of interesting stories that have been researched by, I think, good, responsible researchers in the past and um, – it's essentially testimony. But no rumors of alien bodies or anything of that sort? Uh, no, there actually was uh, the claim that there was at least one alien body at the Cape Girard crash in 1941, along with technology. Okay. So it's uh, people can, can research that and they can Google it. But I guess there's always claims about bodies in every crash, so isn't it? Uh, from the information that we can get… Uh, some of the crashes uh, we have very limited information about. and. Mm. and bodies are not discussed in all of them. I mentioned uh, a, a case from April 1962 outside of Las Vegas. I think that this was a crash, but we don't have enough information as to whether there were bodies. And there are a few cases like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there may have been, may not, I have no idea. 
I may as well just pitch my first prepared, reserved question for you now then, and that is, uh, I'm wondering about the connections between Nazis and UFOs. Uh, By the way, is there any uh, UFO crashes that you know of where there has been human bodies claimed? No, Uh, there are some cases of people seeing completely human looking pilots or operators of the craft. Mm -hmm. Um, Quite a few of those. uh, The human looking would uh, like completely human. (laughs) Yeah, that would uh, suffice to be defined as human beings. I mean, uh, if they're completely human looking, what else do you have to go on? <laughs> right. So, no, I see your point. But uh, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, in, in I mean, look, we can get into some really strange stuff here. I've, I've encountered, yeah. I've interviewed individuals who, who have encounters with human-looking people who do not seem human at all, hmm. who seem intensely telepathic. Oh, um, yeah, right. Yeah, paranormal. Uh, there's yeah. some very, very odd things about some of these people. But, no, I take your point. So these are very, very human, uh, presumably human pilots. Mm. Uh, one of them is a Project Blue Book file from 1954 um, hmm. in a, at a U.S. base at, uh, I think, at the Azores Islands, somewhere in the Atlantic. Uh, a, an airman, a U.S. airman, saw a landed craft. A, a human guy gets out of the craft, doesn't say anything, but smiles, <laughs> uh, makes some gesture, and then gets back into the flying saucer and takes off. I mean, yeah. this is an actual Project Blue Book report, and they could not explain it, and they did not debunk it. Uh. It's quite fascinating. Huh. Um, but that's not a crash. So crashes of human bodies, uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any. Okay. Well, uh, it's not that I'm on a witch hunt against uh, ET explanations here, but it's just that those constitute so much of the material. And if we know that humans are playing with this technology, certainly it should be interesting to try to find out which cases could be connected to humans. I, I, I could not agree more. I mean, it's uh, we have to remind ourselves that the U in UFO is unidentified. We don't. Yeah. We still don't know. Mm. And um, there are connections to a secret human infrastructure that we have to investigate. Exactly. So um, um, at, at the same time, when you go into the history of these encounters, both military and non-military, we are continually coming into descriptions of beings that are described as, as nothing other than just alien. Um, and this this has happened not hundreds but thousands of times. So the question is, wh- what do we do with that information? So when you have people describing gray aliens with big black eyes and big heads again and again and again and again and again, at some point I, I have to ask myself, is this all just uh, confabulation? Is this uh, mind control? But Or is it real? Mm. And so that's what I come down to. I think. But, but, you know, a phenomenon can be real, even if, you know, the most likely explanation doesn't have to be, be genuine, even if a phenomenon. So, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And so we have to be cautious and provisional with our conclusions. Mm. But what about Nazi connections? Do you know of any? I do, yeah, for sure. Um, back in uh, the 1930s and 40s, uh, the Germans, of course, had a, a, a kind of a brilliant self-taught man named Victor Schauberger, mm. who... Um, on his own, I mean, was starting to make his own breakthroughs in disc-shaped, um, I guess, airframes and understanding principles of levitation. Yeah. And um, and his work, he was he was literally told by the SS during the war that he would work for them. Yeah, he got a meeting with Max Planck and Hitler, actually. Yeah, yeah. that's right. They were they were fascinated. Schauberger was was an extremely brilliant man, and um, 
had uh, about this. And during the uh, later years of the war, uh, I know that he built uh, several uh, prototypes of flying discs. Mm. And um, I, I really need to write about this, but I, I was shown one of them. So I saw one of Victor Schauberger's flying discs, at least as it was told to me, by a classified a scientist in the classified world who had access to it. Well, what do you mean, a model or an actual? One, that, one of two, no, an actual one that Schauberger... Uh, you mean a picture or he showed you the No, disc? the thing, like the thing, like I touched it. Wow, yeah, this is huge. It's, you couldn't get into it. You, it, would, it was about uh, three feet in diameter. It was brass colored. Okay. And according to the scientist, uh, he said uh, this is one of two that Schauberger made. The other one was was damaged or destroyed during tests. This one was not tested. In the scientist's opinion, by the way, mm. uh, the principles of what Schauberger was working on were sound, except his material science was weak. <laughs> that, um, in other words, uh, that this 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 could not survive. Uh, the RPMs and uh, that were necessary to get it up in the air and to, to last for much longer than a short period of time. That was his, uh, as I'm... Yeah, remember. but he, he used uh, poetic uh, because he wasn't a trained scientist. He described stuff poetically. Oh, exactly. And I understand his technology was based upon implosion principle, which is very interesting. <sighs> that is interesting. See, right. He And he was uh, probably able to come to these ideas because he wasn't formally trained as a scientist and uh, hit upon something that... Uh, presumably it was very important. But yeah, this is a true story. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to I'm going to contact that scientist and say, look, what's the follow up to this? And I will and and when I get it, I'm, I'll write about this. Excellent. But this is a true story. So I I watched it, I looked at it in uh in this man's office and uh huh. and he told me and and I know this guy fairly well and he was explicit that um that this was from Schauberger's lab. Uh, he was in touch with Schauberger's family in fact about this um whether they were going to get it or not. So I will follow up. But it's quite fascinating. And uh, the point is relating to the Nazi. U or Germans, if there's any cases German, connected yeah. to Germans or right. Nazis. There's the case. And, you know, Joseph Farrell's written about this in much greater detail than I have. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Prague uh, flying saucer of, of late World War Two, And that this is um, allegedly a, a, a craft that flew at many thousands of miles per hour. Mm. Uh, presumably, it was too late in the war for the Germans to uh, mass produce it and make have it make a difference in the uh, the war. Is what we're told. Um, the problem, and then you have the bell, the Glock. Yeah, um, we've covered that in some um, depth. Yeah, now I mean, all of these. I, I'm I'm as intrigued by the German UFO connection as probably any researcher. But my uh, I keep coming down to that when you start looking at actually the quality of the evidence. It's actually not any stronger. In fact, in, in, in a lot of cases, it's weaker than the evidence for an extraterrestrial connection to UFOs. I mean, really, what are we looking at? We're, we're talking about testimony post-World War II Czechoslovakia relating to, to the bell. Mm. I'm not discounting it, but there's, there's, not, there's just not a lot to sink your teeth into. And uh, this goes also with the, um, you know, the, the Nazi UFO designs. They were working on these things. Yeah. And the question is, how far do they go? And and does this is this the origin of the UFO phenomenon? And I would I would categorically say it is not the origin of the UFO phenomenon. No. Uh, there are very good going into the 30s and 20s and, and prior. Yeah, what about Betty and Barney Hill and and that other guy, the first guy who is associated with the UFOs in America in popular literature? What's his name? He created well, Kenneth Arnold. 
No, not Kenneth Arnold. Another guy. He allegedly people from Venus and uh, I think. Oh, George Adamski. Yeah. So Adamski and Barney and Betty Hill. You know these cases very well. Isn't oh, there yes. some Nazi perception? Well, in the case of uh, Barney Hill. So Betty and Barney Hill had a, uh, an apparent abduction experience in 1961 in um, the eastern U.S. in the state of New Hampshire, mm. and under. I mean, and they had a they had something very strange happen to them. And under hypnosis, a couple of years later, Barney did uh, say, "Oh my God, they're Nazis! They're Nazis!" And he was a black man, by the way, wasn't he? That's right. Uh, they they were an, uh, an interracial couple, and in 1961, that was uh, you know still somewhat unusual. Yeah. Both Betty and Barney Hill were both. Uh, I met Betty actually um, mm. not before she died, and I know her niece Kathleen Martin quite well. Mm. Uh, but Betty and Barney were both very, very, um, you know, people of high integrity and uh, very intelligent. And um, Barney was a was a civil rights. That both of them were into civil rights activism. And Barney was had been in the U.S. Army back back in his earlier years. Huh. Interesting. Um, now the question is, what did he actually mean by that? Uh, because he didn't describe these individuals as human beings. Um, he described them as basically looking non-human. Hmm. Uh, so the question is, were they? Did he actually think they were true Nazis from Germany, mm. or was this some other, you know, connection that he made for reasons that we don't really know? And I think it's fair to ask that. There have been people to try to connect this to the Nazis, and um, I, I just don't know how strong a case you can make for it. To be honest with you, um, that's okay. But there is something there, no, there, uh, there at least in '61. Yeah. And in Adamski's case, mm -hmm. you know, back in the 1950s, this is a man who claimed to have uh, direct contact with people who said they were from Venus and they had the long, beautiful blonde hair and they were like basically Norwegian supermodels <laughs> coming in their spacesuits. <laughs> Except for our supermodels don't necessarily have blonde hair, but okay, oh, there you go go. Right. <laughs> I get your point. <laughs> the the non-Scandinavian idea of the stereotype of Scandinavian yeah, right. is blonde hair. Yeah. Um, and I've I've been to Norway, my man. I love Norway, oh. and there are a lot of blonde people there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you have our share. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But anyway, um, in Adamski's case, uh, he's very problematic, in my opinion. Um, you know, he uh, the, the famous case where he had it in, uh, in 1952, where he claimed to, to meet with uh, an alien, which he called Orthon, which was mm. from Venus. Um, the people who were with him did sign an affidavit that he did it but then what we learned later is that they actually never saw the they never saw the being he went off on his own and had this conversation he said and then he came back and told him about it and this was Adamski's way of of doing things uh he, you know he also claimed later to meet with the pope and it was the exact same thing he had two friends with him at the vatican he says i'm going in to talk to the pope and he was gone for uh, 30 minutes or so, and then comes back and said, oh, yes, I met with the Pope. I mean, when you actually look at the details, it's absolutely implausible that he met with the Pope. But uh, so I don't really know what to make of Damsky. Um, mm -hmm. On the other hand, can we speculate that there is a classified human infrastructure of individuals who are blonde or predominantly blonde, who seem to be telepathic, who seem to be having their own kind of infrastructure separate from the rest of us and i i will say that i think the answer very possibly is yes well i, I can assure you one thing yeah. our retarded intelligence community up here would not be involved in that 
Oh, with the Scandinavian intelligence community? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, not, the, not the public ones, at least. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that, and that's good. <laughs> Uh, but there, there are a number of these. There are interesting cases of individuals who've had encounters with um, predominantly blonde, although not always blonde, mm-hmm. but often very good-looking um, male-female combinations, uh, often dressed impeccably, who seem to be able to get inside other people's heads. It's very strange. So there's all, all, often females involved in the blonde uh, reports. Yeah, female and males, males and females. Because that's not the case in Man in Black, I guess. That's usually men, isn't it? That's true. Um, and there are still people who talk about the Men in Black phenomenon. Mm. You know, what does one make of some of these things? Uh, you're getting stories from individuals. They're very difficult to prove. They're impossible sometimes to prove. Um that are uh, extraordinary claims and, um, you know, of individuals who come to visit them, try to intimidate them. They don't seem quite right. There are genuine men in black type encounters that at the very least are from classified intelligence operations. Um, this has definitely happened. So maybe that's the men in black phenomenon. I don't know. Hmm. I think uh, the agencies in America need a better fashion uh, advisor. You know, <laughs> to upgrade the costume. What they really need is a is a civilian based judge and jury system to prosecute them and to investigate yeah. them. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, one thing is the uniforms, but when we talk about the the agencies and stuff, you mentioned that uh, NSA was rather unknown in the beginning. But which agencies do we have a solid case for in one way or the other is involved in the cover-up? Mm. And maybe also the, the, the technology, the science of these aircrafts. Well, I'll answer that on two levels. So one is in the confirmed declassified uh, literature, what agencies have definitely had in interaction with the UFO phenomenon. Yeah. Those agencies without a doubt are the CIA, the FBI, uh, all of the military intelligence, Navy intelligence for sure, uh, but also Army intelligence and Air Force intelligence, all of them. The Defense Intelligence Agency, that is the DIA, has had definite interaction with this phenomenon. And I'm, I'm basing all of these claims on the declassified literature, sure. the declassified documents that we have. All of these um, agencies have described this. Also NORAD, North American Air Defense. Now, in the case of NORAD, since uh, the Reagan era, they have been completely exempted from Freedom of Information Acts. Hmm. Uh, NORAD can voluntarily release information if they choose, but they are not obligated yeah, right. legally to release anything, anything whatsoever. Having said that, there's um, outstanding documentation, at least from the 1970s, showing that NORAD also is tracking significant UFOs uh, violating sensitive U.S. airspace in the 70s. So, What about NASA? Yeah, NASA, yes, NASA has had interaction with this phenomenon, without a doubt. You've got, um, first of all, you have the testimony of many U.S. astronauts from the Gemini, the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs who have discussed very openly um, objects that they saw in space that they were not able to explain. And, um, you know, even most recently, Buzz Aldrin, who uh, is a guy whose head I would love to get inside for a little while and know what he's actually (laughs) thinking. Buzz Aldrin, a couple of years ago, made the statement that uh, on their way to the moon, Mm. this is long when they're out of Earth orbit, uh, out of close Earth orbit, there was an object that was outside their command module that they didn't know what it was. 
he put this statement out there. Now this is you can't say that this is a satellite. I mean, they're they're past all of that, and they're on the way to the moon. And then a, a day or two later, he made a correction to the statement. And he said, oh, it's my understanding that we simply uh, – we had ejected uh, – it, it was an ejection from uh, from the craft, and it was something else that we had seen there. It was one of our own things. But honestly, his explanation just did not ring true, and it, it seemed that he was very much – I mean, think about it. Forty years had gone by, and Aldrin had been thinking about this. And, and he literally did not get an explanation for 40 years. And then he says it publicly, and then they correct him publicly. <laughs> I find that very difficult to, to believe. Yeah. So I think NASA uh, certainly has connections. There are a number of NASA uh, employees from, um, you know, from the 1970s onward who've talked about NASA involvement in the UFO phenomenon. Like Ken Johnston. Um, Maurice Chatelain is the one who comes to mind most. Uh, he was a, a very, um, I forget his exact position, engineer, I think, worked at NASA for a number of years and talked explicitly about uh, about UFO knowledge inside NASA. Mm. Isn't there other astronauts too? I remember often seeing the names of Cooper and Mitchell in this mix. Well, yes. Uh, Gordon Cooper, who I never knew, and Edgar Mitchell, who I do know, uh, both have spoken very explicitly about this. Gordon Cooper may be the most qualified pilot that NASA had. Um, many people felt that he was the best. When he was a U.S. pilot in Germany uh, in the 1950s, has, he talked explicitly about his uh, encounter with UFOs there. And then um, over at Edwards Air Force Base in 1964, um, he did not see it directly land, but he spoke with um, Air Force personnel who came running to him with photographic evidence of a landed uh, flying saucer that they spoke to him at, at. And he said he looked at the negative after it was developed, and he said it absolutely looked like exactly what they were talking about, and then said that those negatives were confiscated the very next day. Mm. Uh, by men in black suits. Of course. And then Edgar Mitchell, who was in Apollo 14, who was the, fish, the sixth man to land, walk on the moon, um, never said that he saw a UFO, never said that he saw an alien being, but did has spoken explicitly, at least for a while he did, about ultra-high level connections that he had uh, within the U.S. government who spoke to him explicitly about alien bodies and technology. Hmm. And, you know, when you're an Apollo astronaut like Edgar Mitchell, who's not going to want to be your buddy, so he can really speak to a lot of in these individuals, and, and this was Edgar Mitchell's statement, mm. which I think is quite interesting. Oh, indeed. The, the other agency that I think is important in the cover-up that very few people talk about is the NRO. That is the National Reconnaissance Office. And um, we talk about the NSA being secret, but the NRO is even more secret. They were founded in 1961, and for 30 years it was a felony – for any member of Congress to mention the NRO in public. Wow. So it was incredibly secret for a longer period of time than the NSA was, and to this day there's very little. Uh, we know that the NRO monitors, or at least we're told, that they monitor all of America's spy satellites. It's a classified satellite. So they're in space. That's what they do. And um, I think that there's been some very good analysis uh, connecting the NRO to uh, monitoring UFOs, particularly if you have a, uh, a component of this phenomenon that is in space, UFOs in space, Earth orbit, the NRO would absolutely be involved in this. And there are a couple of um, of these cases that we know through the 70s and 80s and 90s of, of um, objects being tracked uh, by our satellites. 
So, you know. What about DARPA? Yeah, DARPA is an interesting one. I haven't really researched the DARPA connection to UFOs, and okay. perhaps I should. Certainly, DARPA is very, very key in developing advanced technology for the United States military. And right now, we, we hear a lot about DARPA creating uh, <laughs> Terminator-style robots, I think is really what they're getting in the news for. I, I don't know, but I would I would assume that some of this information comes their way. Yeah, they get the goodies. I would, I would think so, yeah. Mm. They are more like... I don't, uh, but I don't know. No, but the trail probably answer their laboratories. They get the goodies and they make it. Yeah. I think what happens is, um, you know, one of the things that, that's been important for me to discuss with this cover-up, and this includes the breakaway civilization, is the privatization of the secret itself. Right. So people talk, you know, they ask, well, how can the government keep the secret? And I think, you know, when we say something as, as loose and broad as the government, we're really not doing ourselves any favors. No. I think what happens is that these secrets become privatized. It's not simply that they become classified, they become proprietary information. So if I'm if I'm the U.S. Army and I've recovered something, uh, again, I'm going back to the alien crash retrieval, but let's just say. So I, re I have this highly, highly exotic technology. Who's going to study it? Who's going to – well, well, the Army might have some pretty smart scientists, but ultimately I'm going to need to give it to Boeing or Lockheed or Raytheon or General Electric because they've got the manufacturing. And they also have the scientific and research and development people who can study this and actually do something with it. And they're, they're contractors. So at some point they get it. And then the question becomes who owns it? Who owns the technology? You know, They'll make some breakthroughs. They will patent whatever breakthroughs they make. And really, as far as the rest of the world goes, it's simply a breakthrough at Boeing. It's simply a breakthrough by Bell Labs. It's so some corporation owns it, but then we have to look at the structure behind the corporations. Who owns the different corporations? Well, exactly. And this is a really hard thing to do. I've tried looking into this. Like, who owned? Who are the dominant shareholders of the dominant corporations? This is really tough to find this information. There is a very good uh, TED talk on this, not from a UFO approach, of course, mm. but just in general. Oh. Who, yeah, because there, it's been a lot of focus on the so-called superclass. Yeah. And I'm not talking about uh, tinfoil Illuminati conspiracy theorists here. I'm talking about uh, researchers who uh, established that there is like 300 families and 6,000 people at the top of our current uh, hierarchy. Well, and uh, this is mainstream news, but the top 80 yes. is the 80 wealthiest people in the world have as much wealth combined as the bottom half of humanity. Exactly. The top 80. Yes. Less than 100 people have as much as the bottom half. So this should be identifiable people, you know. Exactly. So, um, you know, what what are the corporations that they own? What's the percentages? Uh, and um, and then there's cartels. They hide behind, uh, yeah. you know, structures like that. So. And, and as you say, this is not uh, tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. This is facts. Um, and then you know, ask ask yourself, well, will these individuals be inclined to collaborate amongst each other to get what they wanted? And the answer obviously is yes. They're in the best position to do so. Not not people like you and me who have, you know, no wealth, uh, but those who have tremendous means mm -hmm. and who obviously know each other, probably talk with each other. Um, yes, they will. They are the most likely individuals to get together to talk informally about what they because these are the people who can ma manipulate governments. And this is what the Bilderberg meetings are about every year. So yes, but, but then uh, the question begs itself, uh, how much do they really know? Because these guys are owners and cashing in on stuff. But then again, so, if I'm in an agency uh, or in a black arm of an agency uh, right. uh, where I have a team flying around here, 
there you know when there's no oversight when there's compartmentalization right. you know i control what to tell the the people behind so a big question would be uh, because you 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 have already implicated all agencies <laughs> in america so the big question is which one of these agencies do you think have black arms where their hands on uh, right. playing with this exactly who's actually and, and your yes. your point is it's an outstanding point just because the the top wealthiest people are in a position to control it doesn't mean that they really even care or are managing it they have their own people yeah right they have their own organizations so presumably uh even someone like david rockefeller you know uh, would have Maybe his own individuals who might be his point men. Maybe I mean the president don't have a need to know basis. The president who's so called overseeing many of these right, agencies. Exactly. The same could be the case in private industry. No, absolutely. I, I think I think your point is extremely well taken. So the question is, and who and where is it? And I don't have the answer to this. Um, <clears throat> I think what we have in the United States system is a black budget system of what are called special access programs and then unacknowledged special access programs. And there's actually is a whole nomenclature of uh, terms to describe the, the deeply, deeply classified nature of the American national security empire. Yeah. And, um, and within that structure, which many analysts other than myself have also said this is privatized. We're talking some mainstream analysts here. That it's primarily uh, dominated by private industry. And nobody – the fact is that no one really knows who's running it or how much money it takes in. Uh, what we know is that it's a, it's a black empire. It's a, a black budget empire that we, we don't have any control over this. I, I imagine CIA and NSA are deeply involved Yes, I would agree with you. I think, um, and also Navy intelligence, U.S. Navy intelligence is all. There just are too many connections that we've had over the um, last 60, 70 years that have connected Navy intelligence, also Air Force intelligence. So, mm. my guess is that there is uh, a small clique that that has uh, control over the whole thing. I mean, look, you know, you've had researchers talking about MJ12. I think an organization like MJ-12 makes the most sense, to be perfectly honest with you. You'd have a very small group of people, and they have uh, their connection to the intelligence community, also the international intelligence community, also private industry. You've got to pull a lot of strings here. You have to be able to manage the uh, media and make sure that the the establishment media continues to um, play along. Oh, they do a good job. That's of right. That. And then the, uh, the political institutions. And and so that would require a um, a very high level, you know, group of puppeteers who are really pulling the string. But that's the decision making. Uh, we know already 20 years ago, if we'll take uh, McKinnick's finds seriously, that there was uh, astronauts or, or military men drafted to to this uh, space fleet. Right. So there would be people involved at some level who doesn't take decisions like MG12 or any shadow government, but just like a certain infrastructure. And I, what I'm getting at, the reason I'm asking you is that I want you to elaborate a little on how we see this scenario about the breakaway civilization because are they a breakaway only in technology or also in geography are they connected to our civilization i mean if you're a dude working for them you have a mother and a father etc right great question 
Um, I, um, you know, over the last few years, uh, I've had a few individuals correspond with me. None, none of these individuals are people that I can confirm who they are. Okay. All right. So I was just going to say that uh, some of them can talk a very good game, and they they seem very intelligent, and then and they give me descriptions of of their connections to this black budget world, this breakaway civilization. So in other words, I'm saying I've had a couple of individuals, a small handful, who've written to me, who've given me reason to think that they're part of such such a, a group. Um, I, I have never, uh, I've never been influenced in any of my thoughts by, by these people in terms of publishing anything or saying anything definitive. But one of them made a point to me that has stuck with me, I will say. And, and his point was, look, you know, we, um, you know, I still have, I have family here on earth or I have not on earth. I have, I have family here in this normal infrastructure that there, there are vast underground facilities mm. that, uh, that I would, you know, he said you would call a breakaway civilization. So in other words, I go to work. And uh, I may be gone for months at a time, and I'm living an absolutely crazy life, he would say. <laughs> but I come home and, <clears throat> and you know, I, I mow the lawn, and I have neighbors, and I have family, and I have uh, family reunions. And uh, <clears throat> so in other words, and that actually would make sense to me, <clears throat> whether this individual is truthful or not with me, uh, that type of scenario makes sense. It seems to me that Earth is where the action is. So even if you have a base on the far side of the moon, let's say, or if you have a if you have a base on Mars, maybe if if that's true or not, uh, nevertheless, it would seem most logical to me that Earth is where uh, most of these individuals would be. It would seem to me that they they may have families who are completely in on the secret, but they may have families who are not in on the secret, and and we know for sure that. This is actually how the military classified world does operate. Manhattan Project? Yeah. You know, husband can go off to work. He says goodbye to his wife. He goes in. He punches the clock at the Navy. And then and then he punches another clock that takes him into <laughs> a black budget operation that his Navy people don't know about. And his wife certainly doesn't know about. And then within that program, he would go into yet another nested classified program. Uh, you have, in other words, you have got classified programs hidden within classified programs within classified programs. It actually works that way, and and the reason for it is that if somehow his most classified program were to be exposed in some way, you you could say, no, that's that's nonsense. But he was working in this classified program, and here's here's proof for that. So in other words, it's. Uh, you, you want these layers of deception. Plausible deniability. Yes. Exactly. exactly. So. Um, but in the case of like you know spouses of some of these individuals, their husbands or wives, um, I think often would be clueless about what what their spouse is doing. And we just know this from the uh, the history of the military that spouses often are in the dark about what what uh, their you know their partner was involved in. And I assume it's similar with this. So you could have someone in a so-called breakaway civilization, as I've called it many times, but it doesn't mean that they're all living underground and on the sur- under the surface of Mars. It, do, it doesn't have to mean that, and I've, I've said this many times. So I think that uh, you could have an entirely classified infrastructure where someone goes to work, and that's where they go. Mm. The go-to guy for underground stuff is Richard Sorders. 
Yes, Richard Souter, indeed. Souter. Yeah, I published one of his books. I'm, uh, I'm his okay. publisher for his last book, which is uh, Hidden in Plain Sight, which is a very fine book. We'll, we'll need to get him on for that uh, topic. Yeah, he's uh, he's living in Ecuador. He's been in oh. South America for some time, but uh, you might be able to find him on Skype. I could probably get you in touch with him. Yeah, let's let's try that. Yeah, but back to your point, then that means that this makes sense why you guys are so much focused upon economy because, like everyone knows, if you want to crack the deepest secrets, follow the money. That's right. And how many big cases haven't been cracked because of something so trivial as tax documents? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I can see how why you guys are trying to substantiate the case with following the financial aspect. Well, it's hard, and uh, th- that's really not my expertise, unfortunately. I'm not a trained economist or financial whiz, um, but I, I'm lucky in that I get to talk to a few people who are, and one of them is Catherine Austin Fitz, who's a very good friend of Joseph Farrell and mine. Mm. Uh, we both love Catherine. She was... Um, in the establishment, and she's basically gone renegade, I guess you could say. So Catherine was um, high-level cabinet position in the presidency of George Bush Sr. So from 1989 to 1993, <clears throat> she was uh, assistant secretary of housing and urban development. That's one of the uh, cabinet positions in the White House. Mm. Um, and she is a financial expert, um, and she's talked a lot about the real black budget, not simply classified federal spending, but oh. uh, but drug trafficking money and securities yeah. fraud money, and mm. and how this really uh, flows through the intelligence community. So Catherine and I have talked a lot about this, and um, we already know this from the Iran Contras scandal and its right. deep, deep ramifications. Right. There was a lot of CIA, DAA involvement. Well, and, and uh, Iran Contra for sure, and even prior to that, you have CIA uh, operated drug running out of Southeast Asia, the so-called Golden Triangle, heroin trafficking. These are all with CIA aircraft um, known as Air America, written about by a lot of uh, former CIA officer Victor Marchetti, for example, who wrote the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. And then prior to that, you have um, CIA connection apparently to the um, uh, members of Chiang Kai-shek of, when he went into uh, Taiwan after Mao Zedong took over in 1949 in China. Some of Chiang's people went into Burma and were – this is in the very early 50s – and were selling heroin out of Burma. Burmese minister goes to the American ambassador – and says, hey, can you please get Chang's military the hell out of my country? <laughs> and the, the U.S. ambassador either was an idiot or a liar, and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. This go, That's not us. That, you know, the CIA has nothing to do with that. This is, that's the Chinese position, this problem. And the Burmese minister looked at the American, and he like rolled his eyes, thought, man, you're an idiot. So when Eisenhower came into the White House, though, in 53, um, they did quietly – remove Chang's military out of Burma. But, but you know, the U.S. has been involved in this. For, look, if you're and back in Italy in 1948 when the U.S. rigged the Italian election that year uh, to prevent communists from winning the election, hmm. where does the money come from? If, if you want to raise secret armies, if you want to rig elections, if you want, um, you know, all of this money, uh, you need a lot of it. And, and it's a a lot better than having classified tax dollars if you can just get your own private stash. And what better than drug trafficking? It's uh, it's you don't have to account for it. 
It's all unofficial money. It's a big slush fund. Not, so, notwithstanding the expenses for developing this technology, it's incredible a lot of it, money. And developing the technology and then providing security over the yeah. technology. Yeah. Uh, is all very expensive. So you need an enormous amount of money. Yeah, thanks for bringing me back to the, the topic here. Mm. Um, uh, and so drug trafficking and financial fraud, all of these are very important. None of them get discussed openly in the establishment media, unfortunately, but they're very, very important. So in Catherine Austin Fitz's work, I think she does a, a, as good a job as anyone in the world at talking about how how it all works and um, the big financial black hole essentially at the center of the global financial system where trillions of dollars go missing. Where does, it, where does the money go? Um, I've speculated and others have speculated that some of that money goes into this uh, secret black budget breakaway civilization infrastructure. Of course, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll need to have uh, her on just for this financial aspect. Absolutely. But uh, getting back to your expertise here, uh, we know that CIA officially has no one over them. They don't need to. They, they are the most freely organized on the surface of it. But uh, how would, uh, you know, if we are going to substantiate a case where the president has no need to know, how would that practically be possible to pull off? In the CIA's case, yes, that's easy to understand. But in the other agencies, how can we keep a president from knowing, not counting, of course, people like Bush Sr., who was deep in the loop, right. but just a president president? I had a conversation some years ago with a, a retired CIA um he was more than an officer. He was very, very high le level and a very brilliant, very brilliant man um, who was deeply interested in the UFO phenomenon, knows, probably knows much more about it than I do. And um, I, I asked him, first of all, like, what do presidents know? So what do, what do U.S. presidents know about UFOs? And his answer was interesting. He said, well, some have known more than others. Uh, it was his knowledge that Jimmy Carter knew enough that Ronald Reagan knew enough that George Bush Sr. knew. In other words, that they knew there was a reality and that we didn't really have a lot of control over that reality. Mm. That was his implication to me. He said other presidents, and he talked about uh, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. this, was bef this was before Obama was president when I had this conversation with him. Mm -hmm. It was his opinion that neither of them had been briefed uh, sufficiently. And he said, look, you have to understand, presidents come and go. The... Uh, the people running the program are here for life. Mm. Uh, and actually, he didn't say for sure that Reagan was fully briefed, but he, he said it was his opinion that Reagan was was substantially briefed. I think that's what he said to me. But he said, look, uh, people running the program are um, – they're here for life, and you and presidents are not always reliable. And, and he said – literally, he said some drink. <laughs> some are not stable emotionally. Yeah. Uh, they come and they go. And, and, you know, think about what a president has to do. He spends most of his time uh, being a politician, kissing babies, shaking hands, talking to diplomats. Uh, he's, he's basically a public relations front. Yeah, but he's briefed on a daily basis. He does. But the question is, you have, you have not hundreds, but probably now thousands of black budget operations going on within that community. And I, I would have to say it's logistically impossible for a president to be on top of all of them. And and for, like for a guy like Reagan, 
for the record, when Reagan was president, he was the oldest elected president in American history, and he was really past his prime. That's yeah. just the sad fact of it. And Reagan took naps every day or just about every day as president. <laughs> he literally did. And who ran the Reagan White House? Well, I'll tell you. It was run by Bill Casey of the CIA and George Herbert Walker Bush They were, yeah. and, and a couple of other people. Mm. But um, Ronald Reagan himself was uh, – he was the pitch man. He was the sales representative as, as I think most of these people are. Now, there are exceptions. George Bush Sr., yeah, I think – Everyone seems to believe he was in. Oh, yeah. He's, he's more than a figurehead. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Mm. Um, but your question was, uh, oh, how do you keep it from the president? I, I think the question depends on the president himself um, and how determined are they to find out answers um, and how resourceful they are at getting those answers. That's the impression I get. A guy like Bush Sr. was already – very much in – I mean he had been director of the CIA previously, so he was a man with some, some access and had done uh, – almost certainly George Bush Sr. I think was involved in the Kennedy assassination peripherally, yeah. not not directly, but he, I think he was he was part of the in crowd. So he's been a guy who's been in for a long, long time. Mm. They can trust him. Yeah, Obama I, I would guess uh, probably not. He doesn't um, seem to have that much power anyway. No, he's he's absolutely as much of a puppet as George W. Bush before him. Mm. I don't think there's any question about it. Only Bush was from the right family, blue blood, uh, one percenters, old money. Yeah, but in Obama's case, though, he's actually the perfect replacement for Bush. And I know we're, I don't want to get too off topic, but he's he's the, he was the perfect individual to sell brand America to the world. He had the yeah. right skin color. He um, he didn't sound like a twelve year old on TV, and um, <laughs> was able to fulfill all of that started under George W. Bush, and he's continued them completely. So he was a public image upgrade. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, my God, they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize in his first year as president. What the hell was that? (laughs) Actually, we did it. What's that all about? (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, it's not that mystical when you follow Norwegian politics up to that case, but uh, when you throw the Norwegian spiral into it, in the mix, you remember? Oh yeah, that. Oh yes, that's yeah, very interesting. Yeah, then it starts to and a harp station. Someone just put that's up right. here against our knowledge and um, seed bank. Yep, yeah, exactly. there is a lot of uh, stuff for a field day of conspiracies for sure. But back to topic. Uh, under, underground bases in Norway too, some substantial ones. Yeah, well, if if it's the Project Camelot uh, approach, that's unfortunately. No, no, I'm not talking about that. Oh yeah, right. Okay. In uh, Dr. Richard Sauer work he uh, up with some okay we'll talk with him about yeah, that yeah it's interesting yeah, cool. yeah well we have this uh, relation to underground uh, caves all the way back to Pierre Gunt and Henrik Ibsen so yeah, that's right. <laughs> and even back to the folk tales right. yeah and, and the folk tales too they are often connected with um, UFO um, lore in a way they are overlapping between folk tales and UFO but this is Graham Hancock area um, before you, we move on to yeah uh, wrap this up, I just want to point out that Norway has uh, Hestalen, of course, and the Hestalen phenomenon, which yeah. is it's truly one of the most fascinating Good point. UFO phenomena in the world. Um, well documented. There are scientists there. Absolutely. Yeah. They've done some outstanding work. I've spoken with uh, the Hestalen scientists mm. uh, and they do very good work, and this is something that's been going on, um, recorded since the 1980s. And it's, yeah, and uh, it's all out there on the internet. Absolutely inexplicable. It's mainstream. Yeah. And it's plasma phenomenons. 
plasma as well as there are cases, though, where it seems that they're tracking solid objects, and this is what's so perplexing. Wow. You have some um, – because they would have radar up there at times. To track. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you have at, at times what seems like an absolutely solid object, at other times uh, some kind of bizarre light or plasma phenomenon, always seemingly intelligently operated, and nobody knows where the hell this is coming from. I mean there's just nothing up there. And uh, they're always violating the G-forces. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's it's incredible. But uh, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Back to topic. So a breakaway civilization. It's reassuring actually when you speculate that they may still have a very heavy Earth base because it means that it would be in their interest uh, which way the Earth goes. So to well, hopefully speak. they wouldn't want to just say, "Ah, oh, the hell with Earth. We got a nice <laughs> palace on Mars." So. Yeah. Let's let Earth go to hell. I don't. I. I hope that's not the case. Um, I have to think. Uh, I believe that there's probably life elsewhere in uh, the universe. Probably a lot of life in the universe. Oh, for sure. But I still would think that planets like Earth are not simply, you know, the most common things. I mean, we have a beautiful place here. We've got uh, lots of water. We have lots of genetic diversity. Uh, we really have. It's a wonderful place, and so I have to assume that Earth is valued. Mm. And um, it's certainly valued to me and to you, and uh, this is where we're made to live. This is our place. So uh, I'd have to think that anyone in a breakaway civilization would would think, yeah, this is my planet. I don't want to. I don't want to destroy it. God help. And if not for anything else, then at least for all the resources that are still not plundered. Sure. Sure. Okay, before we continue about the breakaway civilization, I need to pitch another question to you. Do you have, with your vast knowledge of, of this phenomenon, do you have any information you can share with us about the poles or about Antarctica? Antarctica is interesting. Uh, of course, many people who study this uh, topic um, well, uh, who, who are talking, who, who believe that there is, let's say, a, a base on Antarctica. We'll talk about Operation High Jump. And uh, this is something that took place at the uh, the end of 1946 and early 1947. Yeah, we've had two others on who have elaborated yeah. on High Jump. So, well, I, I yeah. just want to point out, though, uh, because I'm really not, I'm not a big supporter of the uh, idea that High Jump ran into a Nazi or ET presence there. I, I I don't completely discount it, but I'm not I'm not okay. a supporter. And the reason that I say this mm-hmm. is that uh, in the immediate aftermath of High Jump, in the next year, in fact, and in the year following that, 1948 and 49, there were subsequent U.S. expeditions to that exact area mm. that were uh, that did not result in anyone's death. That were successful, and in other words, that region. It's not like it's been off limits ever since. It, in fact, it was visited a year a year later. Mm. Um, so if, if the, uh, expedition by Admiral Richard Byrd ran into Nazis with advanced weaponry who warned him away, it, it didn't really stop Americans from arriving there just a year later and then to continue to explore the area. So I'm, I'm they even blew an atom bomb uh, over that area. Officially, it was tests. Oh, over the what year was that? Late forties. Um, Joseph writes about this in one of his first books. I think there were very few uh, before atom- the fifties. I think I have never heard about. Well, I should ask him because do that. To my knowledge, uh, there from nineteen forty-five to nineteen ninety-eight, mm-hmm. there are officially. I think there were two thousand and fifty, approximately two thousand and fifty. Nuclear detonations mm. um, 
mostly by the United States and the Soviet Union and other nations of Britain, France, and, and the other nuclear nations all did above ground and below ground nuclear testing. And um, all of these are documented, and I am not aware of any of them being documented over Antarctica. So I would like to Okay. I'll provide you the info when we're done here sure. in private, and you can take it from yeah. there. Yeah, cool. Okay, but is there a case to connect Antarctica to UFOs somehow? Well, there's there's uh, the statement that was from, uh, I believe it was a Chilean newspaper in the immediate aftermath of High Jump's failure, which um, High Jump, you know, did end early. And there were deaths um, connected with the program. And, you know, depending on what you read, um, the deaths were caused by different things. It was an enormous expedition, too. It had, uh, I think, 5,000 uh, people in there. It was huge. Um, and. It just didn't go well, and it ended several months early. And there was a statement um, in the uh, a Chilean newspaper in the immediate aftermath. aftermath and I'm, I'm simply paraphrasing roughly here, but uh, Richard Byrd apparently said uh, to this journalist, uh, you know, there are powers at the polls. Uh, there are powers that can traverse pole to pole, I think mm. is what he said. Yeah, the future enemy. We must, yeah. yeah. Mm. And um, – and, you know, the question is, well, what exactly did he mean? And there's, there was never a follow-up no. um, that he made publicly to that statement. So Because he got classified immediately at his return. Well, that, maybe, yeah. I mean, uh, it is true. There's, there's some things that are very suspicious about it. And it's also true, obviously, we know this, that the, that the Nazis had a significant interest in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, South America. Hmm. And they did have an interest in Antarctica. They, you know, Neue Schwabenland was uh, the area. They, they claimed it. Now, the, I don't know of any evidence that they did anything more than just drop some flags down there in the 1930s. But they were interested in it. They were absolutely, after the war, many of them did flock to South America. We all know this. Yeah. Uh, that's a matter of historical record. And uh, my very With 20 billion oh, uh, at their books and exotic technology. Gold, art, and absolutely a lot of money and a lot of power. Mm. So they went to South America, they went to the United States, they went to a variety of places and uh, maintained um, a important locus of power. So this is something that really, you know, it's thank goodness we have researchers like Joseph Farrell and also my very good friend and colleague Peter Lavenda. Yeah who do very good work on the survival of the Nazi power structure in South America, primarily. And, um, yeah, you know, yeah. whether it had something in Antarctica, I, I'm not convinced of that personally. But I must tell you, the bird uh, expedition uh, papers are still classified to this day. Just so you know. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I agree. It's, it's really, really, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we love to be... Um, people get access to those papers <laughs> and read them. And thank you for reminding us that uh, people actually died at that expedition and there was material losses because I think we forgot to point that out when we talked with Lavanda and Pharrell about this. I don't think we... Oh, good. Yeah, I'm glad you had Peter on the show as well. I'm glad. Yeah, uh, we're going to have him back for, for the precise topic you just uh, mentioned. But it's important to, to know then that there was losses actually connected to this. But do you know anything about the uh, Linda Martin Howe information? that Lavenda mentioned that there were American scientists and pilots who reported that they had seen some kind of UFO and they were dispersed all over the world afterwards, not to talk. Well, this is, I, I know Linda quite well. I don't know the specific connection here. 
Now, I will say, though, that uh, there, Antarctica does have a number of UFO reports. Hmm. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about 1947, but in the 1960s, 1965, there were some very interesting reports from July of 1965. Um, and I, I believe there were a few other instances of unusual aerial activity that has been reported over Antarctica. So I, I think there's activity there or hmm. possible activity there. I'm not sure about the, the case you're referring to here with Linda Moulton Howe. Hmm. Sorry. Okay, okay. But uh, no, I mean, when we have such a uh, walking uh, lexica of UFO cases here, I have to ask, because <laughs> oh. <laughs> we've had like uh, an interest in Antarctica in all our shows. So oh, no, it is so, fascinating. And I mean, it's such a huge place. And, mm. uh, you know, it seems forbidding to us. But if you've got good technology, you're able to make a, a secure base there. Hey, it's Maybe not a bad place. Wouldn't it be a good place for the breakaway civilization if they're physically breaked away? Underground. Yeah. Look, yeah, actually it would be. If you have uh, access to uh, your own source of energy, what's to stop you from going underground and, and building a very secure environment there? That uh, And scientists say that in Antarctica, they are pretty sure there's huge caverns and natural uh, pockets uh, of uh, underground yeah, structures. Exactly. You don't even have to, uh, to hollow it out. No. Um, we have the technology to build bases under the ocean floors. Wow. Uh, that, that's a, that technology, I believe, has existed since the 1960s. Richard Souter writes about this quite a bit, and I think he's right on. <clears throat> so what we don't have is the proof that they exist, but we do have <clears throat> excuse me, the plans that were underway in the 1960s to create what were called dumbs, deep underground military bases. Deep, right. deep, deep, deep. And that includes under the ocean floor. And all you really need to have an under uh, a base under the ocean floor is two things. You need uh, energy and you need oxygen. You need air. Mm. And if you're able to extract oxygen out of the water, which we've had that technology since the 50s, and you have a source of energy, maybe it would be a useful thing to have. Yeah, I mean, if you can have bases on the planets, at least you can have a base yeah. uh, under the. And, and this goes for Antarctica. So uh, certainly mm. the possibility, I think we have to acknowledge that there's a possibility there. Now we have to look for the evidence. I agree. And uh, we only invite on serious researchers who are evidence-based. Because in this area, it's so easy to take off in directions which may be valid and plausible and everything, but we lose the main population. I agree. And if we want to speculate a little bit, uh, I mean, it is worth asking. I don't really have an answer to this, but it's worth asking if we have a breakaway civilization mm. – that is a group of people who have access to radically advanced science, radically advanced technology, who have probably a different cosmology, even different interactions than, than the rest of us have normally. So they have a different understanding of themselves. And as much money as they and want. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the question then I ask myself is, what what is their goal? What are they actually doing? Well, um, um, you know, why do they need to keep themselves secret? And and what it, what goals might they have, and what is their plans for the human infrastructure? Uh, to what extent do they dominate or control this human infrastructure? You know, I mean, all of these questions come to my mind. What is their relationship? If there is the presence of an other that is here, mm. what is their relationship to that? Or have they had the ability completely to create the illusion of UFOs and aliens? Has that been part of their game? And um, how advanced are they? Are they centuries ahead of us in our technology? Or th These are questions. I don't have the answers to these, but 
uh, I can wonder if if they exist, I would assume that they would have an interest in managing the human infrastructure to the extent that they need to. So they may not really care about a lot of things that go on in uh, the, the ordinary world of politics and, and war, but they might want to own what they feel they need to own. That's possible. Um, but exactly what they're doing. You know, think about this, too. Um, the idea of a breakaway civilization actually, and I mean, has been with us for a long, long time. Just people were not using that phrase. If you read a really fantastic book by um, uh, from about 100 years ago by a Canadian who, who went to live in America, Manly P. Hall, a book called The Secret Teachings of the Ages. Yeah, I know it very well. This is, um, this is an actual, I would almost say this is a work of genius. And what Manly P. Hall wrote about were secret societies, yeah. and, and um, at least in part, going back thousands of years. And the esoteric traditions of of the many of the religions of the world and and what he pointed out is that uh you know all of these ancient religious traditions had a had the the version for the many and then would have the esoteric version for the few initiates who who had the um had done the hard work to learn the true secret now in his <clears throat> case the the real key was learning the immortality of the soul and how to yeah. how to have that uh, but but all of it was designed around a kind of secret infrastructure that was only open to initiates that they kept this they guarded that knowledge uh <clears throat> very jealously from the rest of the masses who because they wouldn't deserve to know this if they hadn't done the work it would be dangerous to give this knowledge to everyone in, in their opinion so um that could very well be the attitude by those individuals in today's world of what we would call a breakaway civilization that they might very well think we have this very very important knowledge most people are idiots most people have no education most people are wrapped up in their own little world and um and if we were to give this powerful knowledge to them it could really result in a lot of destruction or and so it's just for us to know and we will lose power And we would lose power. It's so easy to rationalize all of this. Mm. And um, so it would be – it's very easy, I think, for those individuals to see themselves as above humanity yeah. and um, and the rightful heirs of the secret knowledge. So I actually do think that it works uh, something like that to the extent that they want to control our civilization and use and plunder. <clears throat> you know, To what extent are they connected to the top 80 wealthy people who own as yeah. much wealth as the bottom yeah. of humanity? This I don't know. Um, but I would be surprised if there were no relation. You make a very good case for the natural psychology of this and that there is a precedence in how we organize us. And especially when we have something exotic, rare, something keeps us over the top, there's always been intelligence operations yeah. like that. Even in the darkest medieval ages, it's true. I have two final questions for you. First one, sure. uh, if we are to look at indications, uh, circumstantial evidence, the, well, it's a good thing that the breakaway civilization <laughs> do marry and uh, have family on Earth. and because so. it keeps, uh, Yeah, we hope so. <laughs> But can we substantiate an approximation of how far ahead they are based upon uh, available data? If you see where I'm going with this. Uh, yeah. And the second question, just okay. to not interrupt your flow, I'd is uh, if we look at the history of false flag operations 
certainly we see a precedence for because this is nothing if not the world's biggest false flag operation so so i guess there is a a tile there too so could you also wrap it up a little about going into the history of false flags Gladly, gladly I will. And I'll just say, say off the bat that my current book project is uh, an analytical history of false flag operations. That's actually what I'm working on. Splendid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's taking a great deal of my uh, my time and energy. It's fascinating and disturbing at the same time. Sure. But to answer your first uh, question, wait, wait, what was your first question? <laughs> <laughs> We're taking Sorry. the liberty of going into long reasonings in this program. Oh, how far ahead are they? How far ahead is the <laughs> yes, breakaway exactly. civilization? Right. Well, I, I wonder about things like quantum computing. I wonder about things like advanced artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, and, and are are there classified breakthroughs that we are struggling to catch up to? And and you get different you get different uh, analyses that are provided on this. Like so there are there are analysts who believe, frankly, that the NSA is really not that far ahead of the rest of the the mainstream world anymore. That there is private industry that's racing ahead um, in terms of microchip technology and the like, um, that the NSA is really not all that it used to be. But that's different from the breakaway civilization. <laughs> Can't really equate the NSA with that. So the real question is, Does is there, um, in the classified world, uh, are there breakthroughs in quantum computing? Mm. And if there is a breakthrough in quantum computing, how long has there been one? And no, nobody has the answer to this. Um, right now, you've got a couple of private corporations, including I think IBM and some others who are the usual right now working with kind of proto-quantum computing, and they're, they're making some real success. Yeah. James Bamford, who wrote uh, some very detailed histories of the NSA, is one of the best qualified people, offered his opinion recently that, the, uh, that they probably had quantum computing at the NSA. Hmm. And if they have it, it would be at the uh, recently created uh, data collection center in Utah, hmm. which is worth billions of dollars, where they are scarfing up every single piece of data, uh, every email, every text, every everything you can imagine. They're, they are gobbling it up. And, um, Including this conversation. Absolutely. Of course, if they're, <laughs> they're gobbling up everything. And... Um, yeah. Now, whether you have human operators listening to everything is another no, question. No. So then the question is, what kind of algorithms do they have for artificial intelligence? Uh, we, we're assuming that they're very far advanced. The question is, are they decades ahead? Are they, uh, for all intents and purposes, working with what we would consider magical technology? Mm. I, I don't know the answer to this question. Um, I have to assume that they're probably a good 10 or more years ahead of us officially, like where we are at. In, in another decade, they at least they must be having that, I, I have to think. But, it, but here's the thing. Every now and then you get these uh, very suggestive statements coming out from people who have been within the military classified world. And they all say the same thing, which is we are vastly ahead hmm. of anything you can imagine in your society. And this has come out many times. So does that mean they're 100 years ahead? I, it could be. If they're that far ahead of us, then they have quantum computing, then they have advanced AI, then they have the ability, they they would have the ability to fool us in any way that they would want to, I should think. I, I would have to think. Well, in years, in simple years, they're yeah. at least 50 years ahead. 
but of course uh, that could be you know i i talked about my nsa connection uh, from the 1960s yeah. and they were they were at least uh, three and a half decades ahead in, in computing power then right right and, and then we know that uh, scientific development does grow exponentially so it's not just a matter of being 50 years ahead that could now, there, be but that's true but there's one there's one factor that we have to remind ourselves which is that we our development of the web, of the internet in the last generation, really, could very possibly be an unforeseen development for those individuals. So that, in other words, um, the fact that we have the web has enabled the, the vast human society, the great unwashed like <laughs> you and me, yeah. uh, to be able to have an incredibly powerful tool. And, and an incredibly powerful means of, for us to communicate with each other and to learn from each other and to share data so that actually – We're catching up. Right. I don't think anyone in 1985 could really have predicted no, no. the world of the web as it is. I just don't think it would have been possible. So, so this is an, a real power that we have. Yeah. If there had been no web, if they had been able to continue developing their technology without a World Wide Web. Oh, my God then I would say absolutely they are centuries ahead of us. But, but the, the creation of the web is the great gift, the great unexpected boon to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And it, it might actually be allowing us to, um, to catch up to them much faster. Uh, uh. It's, it's, I'm just putting that out as a theory. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And then false flags. <clears throat> oh, false flags. Uh, yeah, you must address that too before we can let you go. Right. So now it's a good question. I hope maybe I can explore this in the book that I'm writing if there's a relationship to the breakaway civilization. I, I, I think there is. What I'm trying to do right now is uh, I'm putting together what I think is really the first ever true history of false flag operations. Uh, I started with the assumption that it would cover from ancient times to today. Oh, you're taking the entire uh, world history. Well, that, that's been my goal. And what, I, what I've discovered is that you know you have a number of websites uh, and analysts who will claim that false flags are an ancient phenomenon and we've had them since forever. Th that's kind of true and kind of not true. Um, there are a number of cases of ancient society having what might be false flags. Famously, we think of Nero and the burning of Rome, although I, I don't think that that's the strongest case. But even if it were a true false flag, it would be almost an anomaly. Um, for a, there are what I now call ideological false flags. Mm. I've had to, had to create my own terminology for a lot of this. So an ideological false flag today would be like the war on terror, where you create a fake enemy, basically, and you scare the shit out of people. If I can say that, you can edit that out. Like, no, no. You scare people to uh, to create control over them and also to siphon money out of their out of their um, lives. Uh, and, and, you know, we've had ideological false flags probably since we've had human civilization. Like the Inquisition is not an obvious ideological false flag. So that's different. But the actual false flag operations, I think, is a specifically modern phenomenon. And uh, it really starts in a – there. in fact, one of the earliest – the earliest true false flag – Let me guess. The Nazis? No. Prior. Prior? Bef yeah. You'll not – you won't guess this. So I'll just tell you. Okay. Sweden against Russia – in 1788, wow. and there was a Swedish-Russian war, 
Yeah. Uh, it was a Swedish king named Gustav who um, we don't really need to get into all the details. It's actually no, we we know that bastard anyway up here. But um, <laughs> he was he was encouraged by by Britain, by the Dutch Republic, and by the Prussians to attack Russia. Which even then the Europeans were always afraid of Russian power, always just like they are today. True. And Russia was fighting a war against Turkey, the Ottoman Empire in the south, and um, and they wanted Gustav to fight Russia on another front in the north. And Gustav, who really I don't think was very bright, he was not popular at home. And he thought, like a lot of rulers before and after, hey, a good war will take people's minds off the fact that they hate <laughs> me so much. He, and so he started a war. And, and what they did is they had the head of the head tailor at the Royal Opera House in Sweden, in Stockholm, uh, make Russian Cossack uniforms. Wow. And uh, they staged an incident at the border. This is when uh, Sweden controlled Finland as well, and they at the Finnish-Russian border there, and uh, blamed it on the Russians and started a war, which actually was a really ruinous war for Sweden. But uh, that's another story. Well, uh, lucky for us, we managed to break loose from them eventually. Hell yes. Mm. But the the real false flag phenomenon is starting truly in the 20th century. Um, mm. And the the Japanese and the Germans were the real pioneers in the 1930s of this. Japanese in Manchuria did false flags. Germans, obviously, we're talking about the Reichstag fire and we're talking about the uh, Glavitz incident, the invasion of Poland is a classic false flag. Mm. Um, the Japanese actually did quite a few. The, the Soviets uh, in the invasion of Finland in 1940 was a classic false flag. So these are that that was a certain type of false flag, basically primarily military uh, to justify invasions. The Reichstag fire is a little different. That's like their 9/11. Um, the interesting thing about a lot of the false flags then and now is that when a false flag is done well. Uh, it's it's well done. It's difficult to prove. I mean, to this day, it's been over 80 years, and there are still historians who will argue about did the Nazis set the fire to the to the Reichstag? <laughs> really? I mean, that's my minor- Well, there are historians arguing that they didn't uh, kill uh, people in uh, gas chambers. No, true, so. true. I, I agree with. I understand what you're saying, but but uh, relating to the Reichstag fire, if you go into the academic historical circles, you're, you're not going to get. Consensus. Absolute agreement. Uh, you will get a, most historians will say, yeah, they probably did it. Goering admitted it after war and so on. But but there, there's still uncertainty. And um, and many of them will say, well, they just use that as an opportunity to pass the Enabling Act to give Hitler dictatorial powers. It was an opportunistic thing. I don't agree. I think it was a false flag. But, but certainly you're aware of Webster Topley's uh, list of uh, criteria. Like there often is a military... Uh, exercise parallel to that. Uh, absolutely, no. Yeah. Webster Tarpley is so very important. He's such a great gift to this world of ours. Um, right, so as you move into the 20th century and into the 21st century, we start seeing the evolution of false flags. They become mm-hmm. very sophisticated. I mean, vastly more sophisticated than what the Nazis or the Japanese or the Soviets did. Uh, and really, the if there were an Olympics of false flag operations today, the United States would win the gold easily, easily. And I would say, by the way, the silver would go to uh, Israel and the bronze would go to Britain. <laughs> so you have, uh, you have, in other words, the United States and its key geostrategic allies yeah. are really the leaders of perpetrating false flags. Um, back. In the 1950s, this is one that we absolutely know of, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, a NATO operation known as Gladio, yeah. and anyone can look this up. Uh, this is one in which 
it's been proven and that the perpetrators are in prison. But Gladio, uh, and we know primarily about the Italian component of Gladio, but um, what these operatives would do is um, blow up train stations and, um, and public places, killing hundreds of people, hundreds of people, and blaming it on the communists and on the Red Brigade as a explicitly political uh, decision to make people run to the kind of conservative right-wing yeah. government um, and oppose the communists. And, and they did this. We know that Mossad, or we, we're pretty darn sure that the Mossad in the 1970s and 80s was behind the, the bombings of uh, Jewish delicatessens. This is a lot like Charlie Hebdo today. But in the 70s and 80s, uh, there were cases of, um, of places being blown up in Paris, all right. Yeah, and, and it, uh, Italy too. Most of the so-called left-wing terrorism was actually yeah. done by fascists. Uh, right, and this this was Gladio. Um, a lot of this is Operation Gladio. But it, is that tied to the state behind? Uh, correct. Then, then there's been uh, even here in our country, there's been huge revelations about that, like police people who were on their payment. Yeah, and, and when you say stay behind, just so people understand, like yeah. after the end of World War Two, the beginnings of the Cold War. Um, you know, the U.S. and its allies were, you know, they were afraid, I guess we can say, that the, the Soviets might just sweep into Europe. And um, if that were the case, then what would the policy be? So you had um, a number of these nations leave behind covert operative teams, that their job would be, like to echo under the Nazis, you would have them organize themselves and they would, um, they would fight the invaders. Well, there was no Soviet invasion of Italy, so you still have these groups here, and they, they're sitting on their hands thinking, well, what do we do now? And this is what they ended up doing. But they did it with the knowledge of, um, of NATO command and with apparently with the CIA knowledge. This is all part of, of uh, the operations of the Cold War. And let me interject, they were the natural continuation of Nazi intelligence groups under Galen. Yes, I'm sure that's true. Um, like Galen's uh, Abwehr were were swallowed up yep. by what became the CIA. Exactly. Those, those guys. Mm. And um, yeah, actually, when I get when I start doing uh, Gladio in my book, uh, I will look to see if, what kind of Nazi connections there may be. I I don't know of them offhand, but it wouldn't shock me. Peral writes a lot about it, so you can also check. Oh, well, I'll ask him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what will this book be called? Do you have a title for it yet? Um, well, it'll probably be titled False Flags, and I'm coming up with my subtitle. I'm okay. kicking around a few possibilities, mm, but cool. I want it to be very identifiable, and I think uh, if someone's searching for false flags, uh, they should be able to find this book. But it'll be a history. Uh, and when I say analytical history, um, <clears throat> you know, it's not simply going to be a chronological listing of, of events that I think were false flags. It's really going to be an attempt to understand the nature of a false flag, why there are false flags, why we now live in an era of false flags today geopolitically, um, why is the United States perpetrating them, how do we identify them, the whole idea of come up with every new damn false flag, you know, whether it's just we Charlie or uh, Boston Strong or, right. um, you know, uh, any of these others. So it's almost as if they're coming out of a, a Madison Avenue marketing campaign, which is <laughs> what they're doing. Um, I wonder if they can purchase it somewhere. <laughs> we need a good false flag. Who can we go to? <laughs> I yeah, wonder. And then the fact that with these false flags, when you find a media narrative that immediately identifies mm. the perpetrator, we've got – this is a, a thing that we see now with these false flags. Uh, now, when you're talking about um, 
a breakaway civilization being a false flag. I would say um, I, I'm trying to be very careful with distinguishing what actually is it that constitutes a false flag. Uh, you can be very, very literal and narrow, or you can be broad with your description. So you can be narrow in saying, well, a false flag is only when a government or an intelligence agency um, does some horrible act like blowing up buildings and killing people and then blaming it on another party, like, say, terrorists. Well, that's that's obviously a false flag. But are there um, – is, uh, you know, the – health scares, the Ebola virus, or is the H1N1 scare, you know, to, that benefits the pharmaceutical industry? Are these false flags? I would say the answer is yeah. Yeah, corporate false flags. Corporate you know. false flags, yeah. I think I would have to include mm. those. And um, But I, I, I can't possibly include every single act of what I think is deception as a false flag. The book would never end. Good point. So I'm trying to have uh, an analytical focus that makes sense to me and, and keep it all within a couple of hundred pages. It's a much bigger topic than uh, when I set out about six months ago to really to do this. I thought I'll have this book done in 2015, but <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard because every time I get into a case, I'm trying to be meticulous, and I, I don't want to just um, be sloppy with this. Obviously, it's it's got well. So I'm doing my best. You need some of the medicine that Joseph takes when he writes to get through this in a decent time. <laughs> I just have to get rid of the kids. I have to get all the kids out of the house. And, right. I mean, um, I, I still have people living with... I mean, Joseph, I'm not... I mean, look, he has done an unbelievable amount of work, but I remember in the early uh, years of this century when my kids were little, I looked. I started noticing Joseph's work, and I said, like, how's he writing so many books? And then I realized well, he lives alone. <laughs> Well, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> and he has a research team of uh, devoted fans. He admitted he, he almost stopped personal research now because people sense everything to him. Well, no, it's, it's listen, and that takes nothing away from what he does. It's, no, no. it's, it's very, very important. Um, I have people now who help me with research. I don't really, I don't think I have a formal team of anyone. I'm still pretty much a lone person out this. I, in fact, I don't like to have too many assistants because uh, I found that I'm a really bad supervisor uh, people have offered to help me with research, and I just don't know what to tell these people. So um, I haven't really been able to figure that just, part out. Just make a mail that people can send stuff to, and, and, and you don't have to be tighter than that. <laughs> if you have time to go through it, that's the question. I have I have uh, probably close to 10,000 unread emails. Jesus. I'm not I kidding. See. Uh, I, see. I mean, most of them are probably not that important for me to read, but I, I know I miss a lot. I, it's it's literally not possible for me in the course of an, a day to go through every single email again. I try. I do try to read the best ones each day, and I usually think I do, but I miss a few. But I think we all look forward to this book. It sounds like you're taking your brilliant scholarly uh, analytics that you, you provided in the UFO history cases. It sounds like you're approaching this subject with the same kind of sense and originality. Thanks. I'm trying to. It's really it's a matter of a being careful and b being curious and uh, and and brave enough, honestly, to go in. You need a certain amount of of um, willingness to take a chance. Yeah. We. Uh, but but also you have to be very cautious with uh, your handling of the facts. Sure. And we appreciate that you, you, you take that consideration. Now, we've had you an overtime here. Before we let you go... Uh, I was expecting to do just two, two hours solid. I know, but, I know. But it's been such a great... I've really enjoyed the conversation with you. It is a, it's been a pleasure. Before we let you go, could you just quickly tell us which books you recommend us to get uh, connected to the breakaway civilization concept? 
Yeah, actually, there's an article I, I wrote that's on the web. Um, I even forget where I put it. It's probably on, it's on my website, richarddolanpress.com. I did write one, uh, like a three or 4,000 word article on the breakaway civilization. I wrote this about five years ago. Um, I just thought it'd be a good idea to put something out there on the web since it was being discussed. Yeah. People Google that. But in terms of my books, um, the two books where I really wrote the most about it would be AD After Disclosure, uh, which I co-authored with Bryce Zabel and um, I really spent quite a bit of time trying to describe uh, my conception of a breakaway civilization. And then more recently, and I think probably uh, better, would be my last uh, book that I published a little over a year ago called UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, which I, I intended that book to be the best first book for anyone to read if they're interested in UFOs. Oh, okay. uh, I want it to be a, a good – I want it to be an excellent overview of the subject that's sophisticated, that's not just superficial, that really gets into the deep politics and the history and, uh, and the science um, – all of it. And in that book, I have uh, I spent quite a bit of time on breakaway civilization. And in fact, referring to the research uh, of Joseph Farrell and Catherine Austin Fitz and a number of other people who've contributed to developing this idea. Mm, excellent. People, you will notice that Richard Dolan has a heavy web presence with a lot of sites somehow connected to him. He has his own publishing company and all. But like we do with every guest, you can find his complete bibliography and biography and links to his different websites at our website where we present him. Go for it. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks a lot for your time, Richard. Al, it was a real pleasure uh, speaking with you. I, I appreciate the kinds of uh, really in-depth questions that you asked, and I really like where the conversation went. And Boy, that was a great interview. Look, we're just exploring um, what I have always felt is, is probably the most fascinating mystery of our time. And we'll, we'll understand a lot of it, and, and there's probably a lot of it that we just won't always get. But it's, the journey is, is the reward. I really it believe is, this. That pushing ourselves. We learn things that we would never have guessed otherwise. Yeah, like Gandhi said, the goal is the way. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So thanks a lot for, for coming on. We'll twist your arm to get you back and continuing so that this program was just a preface to the next. I look forward to it. Me too. Thank you. Bye. And that concludes today's forum, but stay tuned and join us again when we'll explore with Richard the different scenarios around disclosure. Finally, let me express our many thanks to the handful of listeners who recently donated and really eased our expenses related to improvement of sound equipment. Come winter, we'll throw a giveaway where one of our sponsors will win a book of one of our guests. All sponsors also receive a link where they can download our programs as mp3 files. Though of course everything will still be available free for all at the Tube. Thanks for your support and for tuning in. Signing off with sincere regards from your host Al and the forum team. Be seeing you. number one.